Well, if you've been with us, uh, we've been working through the book of Exodus. Of course, we're not in Exodus this morning. We're in John's gospel, part, of course, because of the Christmas season, but also because this text, and we're going to zero in on verses 14 to 18, uh, this text so relates back to what we've been seeing in Exodus 32, 33, and 34, and I trust that'll come out as we get to study this together. But as we come to the Christmas season, there's just things that we become so familiar with. This is, I think, part of the joy of Christmas. It's the nostalgia that gets stirred up from our Christmas past, so to speak, and we just enjoy the the festivities of this season. But many times we don't reflect on or properly remember what is really going on or went on at that one uh, true first Christmas day. I mean, do you realize that some of the most common aspects, maybe some even here in this nativity, Uh, of the Christmas story, the things we assume that are part of the Christmas story are actually not even there in the Bible, or at least in the way that they are presented often in a nativity or in a Christmas pageant. You know, whether we're talking about, again, some Christmas pageant or some nativity, there are so many misconceptions, inaccuracies, and assumptions about what went on that first Christmas day. And frankly, we hardly notice it, even though we're part of Grace Bible Church, and we are so into the Scripture, and yet we are so also familiar with the Christmas story that we blow by um, seeing it in detail because we think we already know what it says. We already know what the Bible says. We already know what happened there. So we don't assume, or we assume too much, and we don't look at it too carefully. Let me just give you a few examples. This is always fun this time of year. Oh, what's so inaccurate about all our nativity scenes? Well, here we go. Well, in the first place, at least as we're celebrating tomorrow, the day of Jesus' birth, I trust you understand the Bible nowhere talks about Jesus being born on December 25th. Sorry to burst any bubbles here. Namely, given that the shepherds were sleeping outside, of course, that is part of the story, right, in Luke's gospel, and they were watching their flocks by night, uh, it was probably more likely this is early spring when Jesus was born and not in the very start of winter. And can you believe that there was no special star that night, at least in Bethlehem? True, there was a star that appeared that was leading the men from the east over to Bethlehem. But by the time the star got over where Jesus was staying, Jesus was probably nearly about two years old before the wise men ever got there. Oh, and by the way, how many wise men were there? Well, of course, there were three. But of course, the Bible doesn't say how many there were. There was more than one. Now, we think there were three, at least, because they gave three gifts, or that's how they're often represented, but the Scripture nowhere numbers the wise men. And again, through the drama of our Christmas pageants or the live nativities we maybe attend, they dramatically portray this heartless innkeeper who can't offer any accommodations to the poor girl who's about to give birth, and yet there was no angry innkeeper. Partly this stems from what we seem to be actually probably a mistranslation of the word in, in that there was no room for them in the inn. Uh, this was more likely a guest room on a relative's house that they attended in Bethlehem. They stayed instead of in the guest room because it was already full from the other family members that came by. They stayed in what was kind of like the front room or like our garage. And that's where the animals were kept at night. And that's why Jesus was put into a manger, not a flimsy little box of wood, but probably into stone depression of part of the house. Anyway, it would have fit a baby with a straw quite nicely. Now, all of these inaccuracies, uh, I don't bring them up so that you would be, you know, Christmas iconoclasts and make your way home from this service and just tear down every nativity that you see. But it only to show that we can easily assume a whole lot of things 
inaccurate things, namely because we already think we know all about them. And so we never look too carefully at them. We are far too familiar. So we presume that we already know that. I already understand that story. I don't need to look at this nativity or consider the Christmas story again more carefully. I know all about his birth because we assume we know, and so we never carefully look at what really happens and what the scripture really says. The trouble is, we not only do this with Jesus' birth, but we do this with Jesus. We do this with God himself. We assume we know God. We assume, yeah, I've heard all the stories. I've seen the Christmas pageants. I've seen the Charlie Brown Christmas. He even reads the Bible in that. I mean, I got this down. We've been to church so many times. I've read the Bible. We think we know God. But so many times we're assuming things that we haven't actually read. And we haven't really heard the truth about what God is actually like. So often we go back to those nativities or we go back to the Bible and we're just looking to confirm, just glancing through to try and confirm our preconceived notions about what God's like. Because we, we want to be infirmed to what we already think. And so we don't really submit ourselves to really see, to really hear what's really there. What is God really saying? And it's for this reason that we have Christmas after all. It's because God had actually a message to give you, to blow up your assumptions and to dispel your misconceptions, namely about what God is like. That's what the incarnation, that's what the miracle of God becoming man is all about because he had a message to give. And so that's what our text is about most of all this morning. God came down from heaven and he took on flesh, he took on humanity so he could give you a message in person. And you know what his message is? This is me. It is I. I am here. This is what I'm like. And that's what his message was and actually is as we continue to read about it. So the word for us is know the true God by looking to Jesus Christ. More than this, you cannot know him looking anywhere else. So let us do that as we turn to the text and look once again to who this God is. May he dispel our misconceptions and blow up our assumptions about who he is. And we see right away as we look at verses 14 to 18, this is a multifaceted revelation about God. Uh, It comes and it helps the every type of learner, the auditory learner, the visual learner, the tactile learner, they're all captured here in this consummate revelation of God as he took on flesh and became man. And so in the first place, we need to do this. We need to listen to what the incarnation tells you. You need to listen and understand what the incarnation, when God took on flesh, what he's telling you in this way. And we see this in the first part of verse 14. Again, because God came from heaven actually to give you a message, to tell you about himself. And so the question is for us, as he's come and given this message, are we listening or are we just assuming? Are we taking for granted so much and not really hearing what he's told us? The focus of our text starts here in verse 14, and it just reads like this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we're introduced to this character, the word, here in verse 14. Of course, it harkens back to where the reading began in verse 1 of this gospel. John opens the gospel, of course. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, more than this, and the word was God. And so who, as the gospel opens, was or is this word? Well, this word we see, he has no beginning, and he actually was in the very beginning. 
if you can get your mind around that, and you can't, but he was in the beginning from eternity past. Yes, our brains just fell over, but we can put them back in and try and understand what the Lord's saying here. He was always with God himself. And more than that, this word actually is himself God. Of course, it is here where the tightest blooms of the Trinity begin to unfurl. And we see the beauty of what our God, who our God is. Here we see the word is God. And as this text unfolds, we find that this word is the Son, the only begotten Son of the Father, verse 14, and then again in verse 18. Verse 14, he's the only God who's at the Father's side in verse 18. And so let me introduce you to God the Son. That's who this word is. The eternal word of God, always God, always the Son, always and forever worthy of all glory, worship, and praise. That's who this word is that came in flesh. So from this opening prologue then, this word that was with God, he bears the marks of divine glory. He always was. He was never created. He was in the beginning. Verse 3, we find that he is the creator of all things. He's the source of all life. In verse 4 again, it's he is life itself. He is God. That's who this word is. Well, why not just say it that way, John? Why not just say the Son came and he took on flesh? Why describe him as the word? Well, what does a word do? A word is a message. It passes on information. And that's what's going on here is the divine word, God himself, has come to give you a revelation, to give you a message. He's far more than just words, a collection of letters on a page, of course. This word is a living revelation, a living word. He's alive. He's a person. He is God and the very source of all living. And so what does it mean then that he describes him as a word, but that he has something to say? He has a message he's trying to give, and it's a message that comes to all who would hear and listen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Word of God says about God. And so we find that he gave this message, this Word about God, in the most personal and so then in-person way. Look at verse 14 again, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the marvel and you know, as you might say in our culture, the magic, so to speak, of Christmas. This, the word, God became flesh. And we marvel at it because of that very miracle. How is it that God was infleshed? That's what incarnated means. That God actually took on humanity and lived among us and walked among us. He took on flesh and bone here on earth. Again, this is marvelous. We wonder at it. We wonder at the incarnation furthermore that somehow this almighty, the all-knowing, the all-powerful, the everywhere God somehow became man. How does that happen? We marvel at this. We marvel at our God's humility in the incarnation, don't we? I mean, this is God. He sits on his throne in heaven, and he came down to earth to be a servant to rebels. This is astonishing. We marvel at the incarnation because a virgin gave birth. If you don't know how wild that is, try and explain it in a Sunday school class to five-year-olds. You'll be tongue-tied. It is marvelous. 
But he came down from heaven, he took on flesh, not so we would just marvel in these ways, but he came down to get really close as if to get you to lean in and tune your ear because he's saying, I have a word for you. I have a message. I have something I want to tell you. I have something I want to explain for you. I want an example for you. In flesh and bone, I want to show you what God is like. That's what he took on flesh to do. Not just to have us sit back and marvel, but to have us hear, to listen. And here's the message. It's the Word of God, the expert, final authority, and fullest, and most complete revelation of who God is. It's here in this infleshed Word. You can have no more accurate, no more deep, no more insightful or helpful or complete Word than this about God. In other words, you can't know God any better than looking to Jesus Christ. And more than that, as we started, you cannot know God at all apart from faith in Jesus Christ. So, are you listening to what the incarnation is telling you? Are you listening? Now, the nature of us, as I think being made in the image of God, we are listeners. Some of us are bad listeners, I grant. But we are all listening to something. We are all listening to podcasts and pundits with opinions on the media or the TV. We are Googling and asking chat GPT now, computers, to give us messages that we might listen to and have answers for. We have questions, and so we're listening to so many opinions, even about God, just trying to find the answers. And so we Google it. We want to know, what does God think? What is he like? Uh, What would it be like if God were here? Have you ever asked that question? And so we buy more books, we, we look for more answers. We watch videos. We hear lectures incessantly. We have to hear something. But have we heard this most important word? Or we assume many things about God. We perhaps simply wonder whether he exists, whether or not, or whether he'll let me alone, or whether he, he cares at all. Is he happy with us? Does he even care? Can I ever please him? Have you ever tried looking to answers for those questions, but you have gone around this word? You'll never find come so familiar. What do we do? We actually stop listening. We assume we've heard this story and we know it all before. But the very word of God has come to dispel this. And trust me, the more you look at him, you will never find the bottom of his message of the greatness of God. So we must keep looking, keep listening. If you know God at all, if you will come to any clear view of who this God is, you must look through the ultimate word, Jesus Christ. Are you listening? That's where it begins. That's for the auditory learner. How about the visual learner? We need to also look at what the incarnation shows you. Look at what the incarnation is showing you. He didn't just give a audible message. It came with a visual handout, so to speak. We see this in the second half of verse 14. And so what makes this word of God so dynamic is that it's a word not only to be heard, but seen. And so the rest of verse 14 fills this out for us. Let's read it again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Again, this word is special because it is an embodied material word. He does not merely tell you what God is like. He shows you in his person. He shows up close and quite close as it says he took on flesh to dwell among us. But John, our writer here, clues us in to some Old Testament texts that are banging around in John's mind. And this is where we start to tie back into our study in Exodus. Because note here, when it says that word became flesh and dwelt among us, this is not the typical word for dwelt as in I lived nearby. This is the word for, can you guess, it's the word for tent. God set up a tent to be near us. If you've been with us in that study, the whole point of the study has been to build this tent, the tabernacle where God's glory can dwell right in the midst of his people. God and his holy glory could be near them through this tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim and the veils and the priests and the sacrifices and so forth. And in the Old Testament, you never approached God or got any closer to God than that, than that tabernacle tent. And John's saying, Oh, but you understand, that's what has come with the incarnation. God and his glory has been housed in a body to be closer and to give you an up-close view closer than anyone in redemptive history had ever seen. This word didn't just live on earth to dwell with us, as in right beside us. It was the glory of God housed in flesh to show us exactly what God is like. Now, admittedly, what this revelation that he gave in this tent of his flesh, it was a veiled glory. It. And it's not because you needed some special glasses. But what I mean by this, Jesus had no, we talked about this through Matthew's gospel. What did Jesus look like? The, the prophecy said he had no former majesty that we should look at him or desire him. So what did he look like? He looked like a Galilean worker fisherman, an average guy. And so when he stood among his disciples, nobody could distinguish him from his disciples. He had no glory halo like all the paintings show us. He was just a normal man. And yet he was not normal at all. And he had a glory that shined, not of light or of sight, but he had a glory of his character. This is what he showed. Hence, John 1 continues, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. We've seen it. Well, what kind of glory was it? It was the glory as the only son from the Father, but notice, full of grace and truth. This was the greatness and glory that Jesus shone out. And again, John has in mind, I think, by occasion, what we studied last week. When the Lord appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai, Remember, Moses said, show me your glory, God. And then God said, well, we can't do that because then you'd be destroyed. But what we're going to do is this. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to pass by, and you're going to see the backside of my glory. Though we hear in Exodus 34, Moses didn't hear anything. Or excuse me, he didn't see anything. But it was about what Moses heard. He heard the glory of God as the name of the Lord was proclaimed. And that unfolded his character. Let me remind you. This is Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Who is like this? Who is glorious like this? Who is awesome like this? Jesus Christ is like this. For this is him. This is who he is. He is the Lord himself, full of grace and truth. Who is slower to anger than Jesus Christ when his disciples disobey him and betray him and ignore him? Who who abounds in steadfast love? Who is a God so loving and so merciful that he's still a God of justice too? Has not the cross of Christ settled that for all time? Who is a God like ours? Well, you can have no clearer view of him than looking to Jesus Christ. Would the glory and greatness of Jesus stand forth? Well, what if I haven't seen it? What if I can't see it yet? Well, understand, first of all, the fault's not in him, but it's in your spiritual eyes. And if you can't see it, at least yet, so far you've been blind to it. In the same way, if you can't see the sun because you're blind, it's no fault of the the sun shining so bright. But there's hope even with this. The light is there, and it can break through blindness. Well, how can I see? How can my eyes be opened? Or perhaps for many here, we've become so familiar with these things, the light has so dimmed, we hardly see it as we look to Jesus Christ. Well, I think John helps us in a particular event. If you happen to remember in the gospel in John chapter 9, he heals a man who was born blind, who couldn't see, and he makes him see. That's the one thing the guy knows. He was blind, but now he sees. But this man doesn't just come to see with his eyes. Most of all, he comes to see with his heart. He becomes to see the glory of Jesus, and so he trusts him. He puts his faith in him. Now, at the end of that event, as Jesus shows himself once again and the man formerly blind trusts in God, these professed teachers of God's word, the Jewish leaders, they come up to Jesus and they happen to ask him, we're not spiritually blind, are we? You know, these these dignified people of the Jewish religion who, who know the word of God very well, we're not spiritually blind, right? And they ask it in such a way, they expect Jesus to come back and say, oh, of course not, you study the, the word of God. But here's what Jesus tells them. And it gives us the answer how we might be able to see. In verse 41, Jesus says this to them. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see your guilt remains. What's he getting at? If you could see in yourself that you have spiritual blindness, if you could acknowledge, I have a great spiritual need, well, then there's hope for you. There's hope for you to see that there is a mercifully gracious Lord, Jesus Christ. But as much as you assume, I don't need that, I really don't need Jesus, I think I can see things just fine, well, then you're stuck in your sins because you're left to deal with them and you can never be rid of them. But if you turn your heart again to Christ, you look to him by faith, you understand he offers you rest, he offers you grace, 
He offers you mercy. He offers you forgiveness, all because of his cross. He just says, acknowledge that. Confess your sin, confess your blindness, confess your neglect, and come to this glorious God who abounds in grace and truth. Because he will not put you aside. But if only we could see. But the seeing leads us somewhere. I know we've already alluded to this, but you need to lay hold of what the incarnation gives you. You need to seize what the incarnation came to give you as a gift. And we see that in verses 16 to 17 as we go back then to John chapter 1. It's not just a glory to be seen, it's a glory to be had. And we pick that up as we look, in particular, verse 16. Now, we're skipping over verse 15. Even in my ESV Bible, it's not its less significant, verse 15, but it's just in parentheses. It's a break in the argument. There's reasons for that, but we must move along. So verse 16, he's going to explain what it means that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And it reads like this. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Oh, that's a marvelous phrase. What does it mean? Well, commentators debate this, and it can be taken a few different ways. I think, and my ESV Bible happens to have a footnote here, captures it best when it says it's grace in place of grace. Not so much grace coming after grace, so that would be true. But here it is a grace that comes and replaces grace. There's a grace that was had, but a greater grace that's now come. And I think that best makes sense of then the explanation that John gives as he goes on to verse 17. And I think, again, for us who have walked through Exodus and we've walked through the law, I trust this will be more clear for us. But what does he mean, grace in place of grace? Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, the first word there of verse 17, I believe in all your translations, is for. He's explaining what it means that grace has come to replace grace. But then he starts talking about Moses and the law. Now, if you haven't been with us in Exodus, and you're mainly steeped in Paul's letters in the New Testament, which are very good, by the way, but you might be wondering, how does this work? Again, if you're quite familiar with Paul's writings, you're, you're going to think, well, the law has no grace in it. It's not a gift at all. It's not even that good. Of course, if you read Paul more carefully, that's not what he says. But it's true. If you're depending upon yourself to keep the law to make you right with God, the law is no good. That's never why the law was ultimately given. It wasn't given so you find a way to earn God's favor. We talked about this last time. That doesn't work. Why? Because the law can't do that for you. If that's what you're trying to use the law to do, then it isn't good because there's no grace with that kind of law. But that's not why it was given. Has there not been, as we've worked through Exodus, a lot of grace in the law? We've seen it with all the sacrifices, all the talk of forgiveness and mercy and atonement. It's been everywhere. But more than this, did we not see it at God's revelation in Exodus 34? What did we hear about our God when he declared before Moses his glory? What did we hear about him? The Lord is merciful, and he's gracious, and slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's the God of the Old Testament. He's a marvelous God of grace indeed. But now a greater grace has come, you see. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. 
the law told us about God. It told us about how gracious God is, how faithful he is, how truthful he is. But now grace and truth have come to you in Jesus Christ. They have arrived Not just to be looked at, but to be had, to be received, to be yours. Jesus is the greatness and glory of God realized for us. Not just enamored at, but to become ours that we would know that mercy and grace. But it only comes by this Son, the Word, Jesus Christ. He doesn't just show us that God is gracious. He gives it. He gives you a taste. So that's why the only way to know God is this way. This is the only way to personally experience that he is actually gracious and truthful. Though a sinner you are, it's through Jesus Christ. We see that even talked about earlier in this, what they call the prologue, the beginning of John's gospel here. It only comes to you by faith in Jesus. That's where you experience God to be truly gracious and merciful and faithful. Look at verse 12 back in this opening chapter. But to all who did receive him, Jesus Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And just to get this, and even earlier he's alluding to this, like we as natural sinners, we've rebelled against God. We've turned upon ourselves all kinds of death sentences for our sin. We didn't want God. We, as he came among his people, we even rejected him. So how could it be that sinners like us can now become God's children, as we even opened with this morning? Oh, but it's all by the mercy and grace and faithfulness and truth of our God. Verse 12 and 13 together. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the crowning work of grace. That sinners and rebels would be reconciled and made children, adopted into his family. But it's all by the marvelous grace of God by those who believe in Jesus Christ. That's what the incarnation teaches you. That's what the incarnation gives you if you would receive it. And so have you? Have you done that? Have you received him? Have you come to know God as gracious and merciful in taking your sins and dying for them? Taking all the penalty that you deserved, all the crimes that you've done against God, Do you know personally his faithfulness to forgive? Do you know personally the joy of forgiveness? The joy of the peace he offers? Do you delight to know that God favors you and he will be ever faithful to you? Well, you can know that in Jesus Christ right this moment. If you would receive him and lay hold of him by faith. To say, Lord, I'm sorry that I disobeyed your commands my whole long life. I'm sorry I've dishonored you and corrupted your gifts and worshiped other things and was devoted to other loves when you have been so lovely and so good and so gracious. Forgive me for all my sin. Make me your child. Why? Because Jesus Christ died for me. Because you are a gracious and merciful God. If that would be the cry of your heart, know that he is yours. If you would put down your sin and turn back to God, then you are his. And friend, if you have not done that, what better day to do that than the day that we celebrate his incarnation. That's why he came, that you would receive such grace. 
Together, too, let us learn what the incarnation teaches you. This is kind of the summary as we go to verse 18 here, learning about him and so being transformed by him. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, even as we open here, no one has ever seen God. Does that sound familiar to you if you've been with us in Exodus? It's kind of been a recurring refrain. But we saw it in particular last week in chapter 33 of Exodus. When again, Moses asked, show me your glory. And God said, "Mm, can't do it. Because if I do, here it is, Exodus 33, 20. You cannot see my face, God said, for man shall not see me and live. So again, what does the Lord do? He accommodates Moses. He hides him in a cleft of the rock, and he's going to hide him even with his hand as his glory passes by. But man cannot see God. But understand, that's not mainly because we were not designed to or made to. We were actually made to see God, to fellowship with Him. So why can't we see Him? Well, it's because our sins have gotten in the way. We were made to see God, to fellowship with Him. And again, this is the culmination of heaven, is to get to see our Creator. But our sinful, deadly rebellion has gotten in the way. Such that God's holiness, if it got that close, He'd have to just consume us. His holiness cannot endure or tolerate our sin. And so to get close to God, that you could ever see him to endure the blaze of his glory, you need someone to deal with that problem in you. But again, in Jesus Christ, God has come close. God has showed up big time. And he showed up personally, up close and personal to show you what God is like. And this is the very point of the incarnation to make your sin that hinders you more accurately has forbidden you from seeing God to understand that he can take it away, and that's the nature of this God. No one has ever seen God. The only God, this is speaking of the Son now, this Word who became flesh, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus has come in flesh to make known to you again in ways that no one had ever experienced God before. Not Abraham, the friend of God. Not Moses, who could speak to God face to face as a friend. Not David, who had the promises of a great son and redeemer. And actually, Jesus tells us later in John 17 that this is eternal life, to know God and the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ. This is where life comes from. It comes from looking to Jesus. Look over with me to John chapter 14. He's not merely the only way to know God. He's the only way to God. But he's the assured way to God. So it's that Jesus tells the disciples, you know, don't worry, I'm going to the Father. And you know the way. And then his disciples, Thomas in particular, in verse 5, says, "Uh, we don't know the way. Jesus clarifies for him, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. What a glorious word. You come to the Father and he will bring you as you come through Jesus Christ. He says in verse 7, If you had known me, 
you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That sounds startling. We've seen him. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father. That's enough for us. Do you love this? Philip heard it. He was listening. We've seen him? Like, did I miss it? I think that's what Philip's saying. Like, where was he? And then Jesus responds. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? How can I show you more of what you've already seen? If we'd have eyes to see. But if we have eyes to see, Jesus Christ in flesh before our eyes made the invisible God visible, glorious to behold, because by him we have grace and truth through his death. So you want to know God. You want to be reconciled to God. You you want to see him for who he is. You must study Jesus Christ. You must set your gaze by faith on Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, but where? In the face of Jesus Christ. That word who became flesh is the window by which we can see how good, how great, how glorious our God is, namely captured in that gospel message of God came down, he took our sins, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, and now he forgives all who call upon him. Look there and you will see the glory of God shine no brighter. And furthermore, it's in this way, you will not only know him, but you'll be changed by him. That is, this is not a one and done kind of learning. Like I got my, you know, I got my timetables down. Now I'll move on to calculus. That's not how this works. This is a lifelong learning to look at Christ. We are his disciples, aren't we? And we, what are we? We are his students, his learners. And so then what do we do? We are his followers. We look to learn and so then be changed. That's what it means to be a disciple, a learner, a follower. So as we look to Jesus, understand, we learn not just to get more knowledge about him. We learn not to get more knowledge. We learn to get more godly. Hear this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He's actually speaking here of the preached word, the read scripture. And the Spirit works with that scripture to do this. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, and I would add, in Christ Jesus. So when we see his glory through the word, what happens? We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When you see Jesus aright, you cannot help but be conformed to him, to be transformed. So we got to be steeped in his word, don't we? Ever holding out in that gospel who this word of God is. There you will learn his grace, won't you? You will learn his mercy to sinners. You will learn his rebuke of the self-righteous. You will learn of his offer of rest to the weary. And you'll see that no one is so merciful, so gracious, so abounding in steadfast love than Jesus Christ. And the more you see that, that he's done that for you, 
you cannot help but be softened, formed, changed, melted, and conformed to walk after and imitate such a glorious grace. So may we, as his people, always be learning that we too might be merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Because when we do this, who are we being like? Our Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. Let's pray for this. Father, we thank you for the gift of what we celebrate at Christmas. That God, in your great abounding steadfast love and your mercy, you came for us. And what is this but just such a gift? We thank you that we can be your people. We thank you that we can know you. You didn't leave us to ourselves, our own imaginations, and even misconceptions. We see your glorious nature stand forth in Jesus Christ. May we be humbled that we can know you. May we delight in who you are, and that you are so good to us in Christ. And uh, may we walk in it. May we imitate it. We've tasted and seen how good you are. May we show that goodness to others by giving them the same grace. It's for the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.